Hey everybody, welcome to the New Market Alliance Church podcast, where you're invited to not just attend church or watch church, or in this case, listen to church, but actually go and be the church. For everything you need to know about our community, be sure to go to newmarketalliance.ca and maybe even drop us a line to let us know you're listening. We read everything you send and we'll be sure to get back to you. Our worship service happens every Sunday at 10 a.m. in person or streaming online. We want you to know you absolutely matter to God and you absolutely matter to us. Everyone is welcome and wanted. Now, let's join today's teaching. All right, we're going to try a little exercise together this morning, okay? I need you to help me fill in the blanks. An apple a day. Easy come. The early bird. The grass isn't always greener. All work and no play. Something like that. Actions speak. Yeah. Imitation is the highest one more. A penny saved. Wow, you guys are good. Those are all examples of what's called an aphorism. What's an aphorism? Don't worry, I had to look it up myself. It's a concise saying that is used to express a general truth. It's kind of like an idiom, but an idiom uses figurative language and an aphorism uses literal language. Anyways, you don't care. You didn't come here for English class. The reason I'm talking about aphorisms this morning is because scholars believe that James is using an aphorism in this text this morning that we're going to dig into. So if you have your Bibles and you want to flip with me, we're going to be in James chapter 5, verse 12. Now, this verse is sort of sandwiched between the section that Jonathan talked about last week, the haves and have-nots, and what's coming next week, the power of prayer. And at first glance, this verse, it, it feels kind of out of place. It doesn't really connect nicely with the haves and have-nots or the power of prayer afterwards. So let's read through this verse, what James has to say, and I'll tell you what I think he's up to in this verse. James 5, verse 12. He starts out by saying, but above all my brothers, or some versions say, but most of all my brothers. The Greek for this above all is pro-panton, and it's commonly translated to mean most importantly, or but especially, kind of like this verse. But given the, the great care that James has put into really his entire letter, uh, he's put great emphasis on things like your patience and your words and faith and works. It seems a little bit odd that James would be saying that this one little verse here, this sort of one-off that he regards as the most important part. See, the phrase in this context is probably better understood to mean finally or to sum up. It's like when you write your essays in English class and at, at the end, you, you write all the meat of what you're going to say and at the end you go, finally, in conclusion, you're sort of recapping the highlights, the main findings from your study. That's what James seems to be up, here, up to here. He's just written four and a half chapters and now we see in verse 12, as he begins to wrap up his letter, he says, finally, in conclusion. And then he gives us his closing thoughts of what he's been talking about. So let's read the whole verse together. But above all, or finally, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, as I said, James is, the scholars believe that James is using what's called an aphorism here, which means that the underlying truth should be pretty clear to us. 
But let's just talk that through because as clear as it, as clear as it is, I think that this passage has been misquoted over the years. So before we get into what James is saying, I want to clear up some things that James is not saying. When James says, my brothers, do not swear, James isn't talking about our little four-letter words that we like to use. I've heard this verse used to tell people not to cuss, not to use crude language. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe that scripture has something to say about that, about cussing and crude talk. Colossians 3 says, But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Or Ephesians 5, Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. And if you remember back just about a month ago, even James had something to say about this stuff. Remember Pastor Potty Mouth talked about me and my big mouth? You can go back and listen to that. Um, my point is, we definitely need to be careful with our words and our little potty mouths, but just don't come out of this passage trying to defend that because that's not what James is after. He's also not saying that as Christians, we should never enter into any oaths. Who in here is married? Get your hands up. Yeah, you remember saying something like, I, Glenn, take you, Brittany, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, richer or for poor, sickness and health, to love and to cherish as long as you both shall live. That's a marriage oath. You're basically saying, I swear to stick it out with you for life. Or how about when someone new gets sworn into office, whether it's president, prime minister, or something. It's like, I, Justin Trudeau, do solemnly swear that I will faithfully discharge the duties of the office of prime minister according to the law. Or maybe you've been to court sometime, and they ask you, do you swear that the evidence you shall give shall be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? And you say, you can't handle the truth. <laughs> Even your mortgage is a type of oath. You're saying, you have loaned me X amount of dollars and to be able to purchase this home and I promise to repay you in a set amount of time and if I don't, you get to take my house. Those are all examples of types of oaths that are commonly used today. And look at me. James is saying if you venture into those, you're in sin. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Marriage is good. Marriage is God's idea. So don't, don't go get divorced. Don't go rip up your mortgage. Bad idea good things. What is James getting at in this passage? Well, to understand what he's focusing in on, I think we need a bit of context for how oaths were used back in his day, especially because we don't really use the word oaths all that much in our day. When he talks about oaths, picture someone saying, I promise you, or I swear to God, or maybe when you're a kid, you say something like, I cross my heart and hope to die, or I swear on my mother's grave. We more commonly in our day use the language of promises or covenants or agreements or contracts rather than oaths. In the Old Testament, there was a general understanding that you were allowed to make oaths about things uh, under certain conditions. One common way that people used oaths is that they would say whatever their thing is, and then they would swear to it by God's name, adding sort of extra weight to what they're saying. It seems that this practice was seen as okay in general, as long as it wasn't a false oath. Leviticus 19 touches on this. 
It says, do not bring shame on the name of your Lord God by using it to swear falsely. I am the Lord. So it seems pretty straightforward, right? Don't use God's name to swear an oath that basically is a lie. Which implies that then there is room for oaths that are true. That you can make oaths even using God's name so long as you keep the oath. Make sense? But see, where it gets tricky is as humans, sometimes we utter falsehoods knowingly. We say things that we say we're going to do something, even we might swear to it, but we don't actually intend to do it. Or on the other side, maybe sometimes we have genuine intent to do it, but we're just unable to accomplish what we genuinely intend to do. So what do we do with that? Well, there were many in the Old Testament that thought, okay, let's just avoid oaths involving God's name altogether to avoid inadvertently making a false oath, even though they had good intentions. But then there's God. God uses his own name in oaths multiple times. Remember the story of Noah? You know, after the great flood, you got your favorite children's story. You got the boat and the, and the rainbow and all the cute animals and all the dying people that everyone else, death, you know, paint that on your kid's wall. God makes an oath with Noah. He says he will never flood the whole earth again. And then he gives a rainbow as a sign of this covenant, of this oath. Or how about the covenant with Abraham? When God makes an unconditional oath that Abraham will have a son in his old age, that his lineage will become a great nation, the nation of Israel, and that all the families on earth will be blessed through him and his lineage, ultimately Jesus Christ. Then when God asks Abraham to take this promised son up to the mountain and slaughter him as a sacrifice to the Lord, remember that story? Super cheery Father's Day. Abraham listens and he trusts God and goes all the way. He's raising his knife, ready to take the life of his son, to be obedient to the Lord. And at the last second, he's stopped by an angel of the Lord. And the angel says to Abraham, because you have obeyed me and have not withheld even your only son, I swear by my own name that I will certainly bless you. I will multiply your descendants. And then he continues on with his covenant. Okay, okay, so maybe it's just God then who should be using God's name in oaths and we should steer clear of them. Ah, but then there's an example in Exodus 22 where an oath before the Lord is actually demanded. The verse says, Now suppose someone leaves a donkey, ox, sheep, or any other animal with a neighbor for safekeeping, but it dies or is injured or is taken away and no one sees what happened. The neighbor must then take an oath in the presence of the Lord. If the Lord confirms that the neighbor did not steal the property, the owner must accept the verdict and no payment required. So here we see that in this scenario, they actually were commanded to take an oath in the name of the Lord. So what do we do with this? There's a subtle but important difference in the kind of oaths involving God's name that were to be avoided and others that were to be used. Where the people usually got into trouble with their false oaths was when they made forward-looking oaths. Like saying, I swear to God, I'm going to repay you for this thing. And if you don't, whether intentionally or not, you're now making a false oath. Um, but in the example we just read in Exodus 22, this guy is to make an oath to God regarding something that happened in the past. He's saying, I swear to God I didn't steal your donkey. It was mauled by a lion or something. 
You see the difference? God doesn't want his name involved in an oath about the future because the person's motives could be impure. Intentionally lying, being dishonest, or they could have great motives and just be unable to accomplish what they're committing to. Either way, involving God in a false oath is a big no-no because you're essentially making God a liar. That's why this is such a big deal. God in his holiness cannot be imperfect. But when you swear a false oath, whether intentionally or not, you're dragging God's perfect and holy name through the mud. But in the donkey example from Exodus, this guy is making an oath about something that already happened in the past. So as long as he isn't outright lying, God can't be caught up in his false oath. You're saying, I promise you that this thing happened as I'm saying it did. And I'll even add the weight of God's name to the equation. You know, it actually kind of makes sense with what Jonathan taught about a few weeks ago from James's letter. Remember when he talked about seizing the day, that we don't know what tomorrow holds. James is kind of circling back around to that to highlight that again. Don't make false oaths about things in the future that you may or may not have control over. Whereas in the case of giving your testimony of something that has already happened, then God is able to serve as a sort of guarantor of truthfulness. All of this was complicated and tricky for people to navigate, that in James's day, it was very common for people to use loopholes in their oaths to get around all of this. They understood that if you involved the name of God in an oath, it was considered binding and legitimate. So what that led to was there were people that would take this understanding to mean that only oaths involving God's name were binding. Now, in our passage in James 5, uh, it's actually a really close, close quotation from Matthew from the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus talked. So I'm going to read that passage and continue on because it gives a little more detail. The Matthew version says, But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So again, in James and Jesus' day, people were trying to find loopholes for their oaths. And so if a person wasn't really serious about the oath that they were making, they would swear by less sacred things. This is what Jesus is getting at when he's saying, do not take an oath either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you can't make even one hair white or black. Since they don't invoke the literal name of God, the oath wasn't considered binding. I swear by heaven, I swear by earth, I swear by Jerusalem. Picture these phrases that they would use as sort of like us crossing our fingers behind our back. It's them trying to get out of their oath. This increasing use of loopholes in their oaths inevitably led to oaths being devalued. I picture it kind of like car warranties. Anybody ever hesitant to buy a used car warranty? Just me and Jonathan? Yeah. We want to get one because we want that added protection. We don't know the history of the car. You'd hate to drive the car off the lot and a month later something goes wrong and you're up the creek. But I think that a lot of us are hesitant around used car warranties because we've been burned by them in the past. You know, your check engine light comes on and your car starts to shake and you take it right to the shop and you're like, fix it, fix it. 
and they look under the hood and they find you've got a dead cylinder. Whew, okay, my warranty's gonna cover that. Uh, but wait, the insurance guy, he's gonna come check it out. You know, there's a little bit of sludge in the bottom of your engine and you're a few hundred kilometers over your oil change. Too bad, your warranty's voided. Or maybe they only cover specific parts or maybe they only cover up to a certain dollar amount. Whatever the specifics are, you or someone you know has inevitably been scammed by some unforeseen loophole, right? And knowing what you know, it at least makes you think twice before buying one, and it might make you avoid it altogether. That's basically what's happening in Jesus' day with oaths. People have used and abused the system so much that they don't really know what they can trust anymore. Well, then Jesus comes onto the scene. And he pushes through all that crap. And like he does time and time again, he goes right to the heart of the law's intent. He actually tells his disciples in verse 34, do not take an oath at all. Jesus understands the duplicity of the human heart and that sometimes there's genuine honest intent behind an oath, but at other times there's intent to deceive that is covered up by an oath. Jesus enters into that space and says, all right, enough is enough. If you are a disciple of mine, you should just avoid oaths altogether. And then he gets really on the ground and practical with how we should live instead. Verse 37 says, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. I actually like how James says it a little bit better. He says, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. If you boil it down, Jesus and James are really just calling us to be people of integrity. Be a man of your word. Be a woman of your word. Honestly, it's really that simple. If you say that you're going to do something, do it. Live a life of follow-through. Jesus and James are saying, I know where your culture is at with all this, using deceit and half-hearted promises to screw other people over and ultimately get their way. But if you're gonna be a follower of Jesus, that's not how we're gonna do things. No, we are gonna be a people of our word, a people of integrity. We've talked about this before. The word integrity comes from the root word integer. And if you passed elementary school math, we should all know that an integer is a a whole number. It gives us this picture of a whole person. To be a person of integrity means that you are a whole person, that you should be who you are, wherever you are. That's it. That's the baseline expectation. Be who you are, wherever you are. As disciples of Jesus, we should be people that whatever we say, our words are absolutely believable and dependable. So what does this look like? In your daily conversations, you should choose to be so truthful, dependable, genuine, honest, reliable, that nobody ever even has to question you. You don't need an oath because you are consistent. You are who you are, and you always come through on what you've said. Again, it's about living a life of follow-through. So practically, what does this look like to live out in our world? Well, we all know that this isn't how our world functions, right? We have to bring all sorts of legal safeguards into our lives to protect ourselves from malicious people. 
When you do any sort of business, you need this stuff. You need a guarantee of follow-through, contracts and signatures and deposits and collateral. I once was uh, filling up my gas, and I forgot my wallet at work, but I didn't realize until after I had filled my tank. So I went inside to the clerk, and I said, I'm sorry, this is what's happened, and she was not happy. I told her, I'll go, I'm going to go right to work, I'm going to get my wallet, and I'll be right back. And she was like, honestly, I don't know if I can let you go, I might have to call the cops. I'm like, I'm just, I'm like five minutes away, I'll be right back. I offered her my watch as collateral, and then she sort of hesitantly allowed me to go and said, if I'm not back in 15 minutes, she's going to call the cops. Now, obviously, she had zero reason to believe that I would do what I was going to do. She doesn't know me. But I'm sure that those of you that are a little bit older than me can probably think back to a time when that sort of situation wouldn't have been that big of a deal. We used to live in a world in, where gentleman agreements were a thing, where your handshake was all that mattered to make an agreement to someone. Culturally, I think those days are gone. But in your life, in our church family life, I think that's the kind of thing that James is calling us to. When you're at work, do what you say you're going to do to your boss or your coworker or whoever. Do what you say you're going to do. When you're volunteering, whether it's here at church or some other organization, follow through with your commitments. When you're at home, follow through on what you've told your husband or your wife or your parents that you're going to do. Parents with kids, the best way to raise children to be these kind of people, people of integrity, is to live that way with them. So even though you may feel that their requests are trite, or maybe they're asking you something over and over, parents, come on, you know. And you just say, okay, okay, fine. But you don't really have intent to follow through. Jesus doesn't say, let your yes be yes, unless you're talking to someone under 12. Our kids deserve our yes and our follow through on that yes, just as much as your boss does. Again, following through with your, yes, with your yeses with your kids is a simple little thing, but your consistency and integrity with them is likely to be one of the best teachers for them to live a life of integrity themselves. Now, I feel that the let your yes be yes part is easy to grasp-ish because it's what we've been talking about. Follow through on what you say you're going to do. What about let your no be no? Maybe a bit harder to follow along with. I mean, it's the same underlying principle. Don't do things that you say you're not going to do. Maybe it's like, I'm not going to stay up binging Netflix tonight. Or I'm not going to be a person of gossip. Or I'm not going to work late anymore. Or I'm not going to be irresponsible with my money. This is a bit of a side tangent, but those are what I like to call not goals. And they're far less effective than goals. See, a not goal is something like, I'm not going to be irresponsible with my money anymore. That is a great idea. But you don't really have anything to aim for. You're just saying, not be irresponsible with my money. But that's relative. Do you mean that you're not going to rack up credit card debt? Do you mean that you're going to save money by not eating out every week? Do you mean that you're not going to buy clothes that you don't need? See what I mean? There's nothing in there to give your goal roots, your not goal roots. 
If instead you say something like, I'm going to put this much money away every month to pay down my debt, or I'm going to save $500 a month, or I'm going to give 10% of my money away, or I'm going to put 1% of my paycheck towards my kid's education. Those goals are actually attainable because you've given yourself something to aim for. One of the examples that I hear all the time, I'm not going to be my dad when I grow up. I'm not going to be my mom when I grow up. That's great. But what the heck does that look like? You've got nothing to shoot for except to not be your dad. Maybe your dad was abusive physically or emotionally. So your goal is to not be that. Well, you can not be that and still fall short of what I think you ultimately want to be as a father. Instead, how about having a goal to be self-controlled, slow to anger, quick to listen, slow to speak, an expert in your children's strengths? You see what I'm saying? Your yes goals are far more effective at getting you where you want to be than your not goals ever will be. Anyways, back to the passage. One of the things that came to mind while I was working on this message this week was the idea of not really giving our yes or our no. Jesus is saying, if you say yes, then follow through on your yes. And if you say no, then follow through on your no. But what if you don't give your yes or your no? We've created this sort of third option of maybe, where you're not committed enough to say yes or no. Now, I'm sure there's legit times when you have to say maybe. If you were to invite Brittany and I over for dinner on July 20th, our babies do the 23rd, there's a pretty good chance I'm going to say, yeah, maybe, I, I might be busy that day. And I think it's fair to say things like that to say maybe to things like that. But really, you could argue that that's really a yes with a caveat of no if things unfold the wrong way. The vast majority of the time that we say maybe, if we're honest with ourselves, it's just a way for us to keep our options open, just in case something better comes along, right? I'm sure all of our soon-to-be brides and grooms are just about fed up with people on their guest list who are in that unconfirmed category. Can I get an amen? amen? As a youth pastor, I face this all the time. Every single retreat I have ever scheduled, I have a small handful of youth that sign up right away. And then I have another small handful that sign up after I've reminded them like three times. And then 80 or 90% register on the deadline. And then I get another small bunch that come to me the day of the retreat, and they're like, can I still get in? This pattern of hanging out in the maybe is really most common, I think, in the millennial and the Gen Z generations. A lot of it is tied back to social media, and it's defined by this term FOMO. Now, Jonathan likes to dumb down things for the millennials and the Gen Zs all the time. So for you boomers and Gen Xs out there, I'm going to help you out with this one, okay? FOMO. It means fear of missing out. Yeah, I know. You probably knew that already, but I got to try when I can. FOMO isn't really a new feeling at all. Eve felt it in the garden when she was convinced that she might be missing out, that God might be holding something back from her. The people of Israel felt it when they demanded that God give them a king because they feared that they might be missing out on what other nations had. I bet you there was some FOMO when Martha was upset with Mary for not helping in the kitchen. She probably didn't want to be in the kitchen. She didn't want to miss out on what Jesus might be up to. 
This FOMO stuff could honestly be a whole other sermon or even series, but my point is, I think when James and Jesus say, let your yes be yes and your no be no, I think they would wholeheartedly agree that there's no room for maybe. Because it kind of puts you in the same category as someone who backs down on their yes. We would consider that person unreliable, which is the exact opposite of the heart behind this passage and the exact opposite of who we're supposed to be as disciples of Jesus. Think of how ridiculous this would be in the rest of your life. Yo, ref, was that a goal? Maybe. Yo, doc, do I have cancer? Maybe. Did I get the job? Maybe. Do we qualify for the mortgage? Maybe. Has the jury reached their verdict? Maybe. Right? Like, how frustrating and ridiculous would that be? And then you apply it to spiritual things. Are you right with God? Do you know where you're spending your eternity? Those are some things you darn sure don't want to be sitting in the maybe category for. There's actually plenty of passages in the Bible that eliminates this option of maybe. Jesus says, the time promised by God has come at last. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. There's no room for maybe there. Either repent and believe or don't. But a maybe attitude isn't going to get you into the kingdom of God. Or when he says, anyone who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. That's pretty blunt. But it's the same sort of thing. Either get in or get out. There's no room for you to sit on the sidelines or second guess your choice and wondering if maybe something better will come along. Jesus and his disciples and the scripture really don't leave room for half-hearted yeses. Jesus wants your all in. Just like you do, right? Like you don't want a wife that's kind of in, but also sort of looking over her shoulder, wondering if something better might come along. Do you want a friend that's cool with hanging out with you until they get in with another group of friends and you're kind of leave, leave you in the dust? Or kids, teens, do you want your parents to be all in on you until, until you disappoint them, until you mess up somehow, you fall short of their expectations? No, we want people to be all in on us, despite our weaknesses. Well, how much more do you think Jesus wants your all in? The scriptures are full of people who gave their all in, even when it meant their life on earth might be hard. How about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Remember their posture just as they're about to be thrown into the furnace? God is going to show up for us, but even if he doesn't, we will not bow down to you. Take the apostles of Jesus. Do you think their lives were all sunshine and rainbows? No. They were beaten, imprisoned, flogged, stoned. All of them were ultimately killed because of their faith in Jesus. Oh, wait, except one guy. He was just boiled alive, and then he didn't die, so they exiled him to an island. Every one of these guys was committed to their yes to Jesus, that they were willing to go through really brutal beatings and floggings and tortures and horrible deaths rather than turn their backs on Jesus. They were true to who they were, no matter where they were, no matter what they faced, right to the end. Jesus is looking for people who lay their yes down and are in on relationship with him and the advancement of the gospel. 
My fear is that some of us may have given our yes to Jesus, but our lives don't really show any evidence of that yes. But James here is saying, let your yes be yes. I believe he's saying, are you in or are you out? Because if you're in, you're expected to live a life of integrity that matches your words. Your words aren't enough. If you're saying to Jesus, you need to follow through with your actions, not just your words. This goes back to what I was saying at the very beginning, that this verse is really the start of his conclusion to his letter, that he's starting to bring it all together. And after all that he said in his letter, you know, patience and suffering and faith and works and showing mercy, controlling your tongue, choosing to live God's way rather than the world's way, living each day for God's glory, how to use our money for God's purposes. He's saying, with all that I have instructed you, are you going to give your yes to him? Are you going to choose to live things out the way that God has designed you to live? Give Jesus your yes and then spend the rest of your life letting your yes be your yes. If your faith doesn't have have works, it's actually evidence that your faith probably doesn't exist. In the same way, if you're living a life that lacks consistently lacks integrity, you have to be honest with yourself. Either you're a follower of Jesus that's living an inconsistent life and has some things to work on and grow in, or you might not be a follower of Jesus at all. So maybe you're here this morning and you've never said yes to Jesus. If that's you, I want to invite you. Give him your yes. And then allow him to speak into your life and grow you into a person of integrity and all the other areas that we've talked about through these past number of weeks. Maybe you're here this morning and you have said yes to Jesus, but maybe it was when you were a kid and you haven't really given it much thought recently. Or maybe you were all in on him, but then the worries and bumps of life sort of got in the way and your life you live hasn't really matched the words that you say. Or maybe you come to church every Sunday, but if you were honest with yourself, you're really just pretending to be a Christian. Your life doesn't look any different than the rest of the world around you, and you don't really have an intention of living your life God's way. If those are you, I believe Jesus is calling you into a life of integrity, a life of living out what you believe. And maybe you have given your yes to Jesus, and you are doing your best to follow through on your yes. Keep going. There will be ups and downs along the way, but at the core of who you are, you are all in on Jesus, surrendering yourself to live your life his way. My hope for you is that you would feel encouraged and keep pressing on in the good fight of faith with a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit as you seek to live a life of integrity again tomorrow. I'm just going to wrap up with this short little story. In Joshua chapter 24, the great leader Joshua is nearing the end of his life. And as he's saying his final farewell, He's trying to encourage the nation of Israel to stand firm and continue to serve the Lord even as he passes on. So Joshua reminds the nation and the leaders of God's faithfulness and all the ways that he has loved and provided for them. How God was faithful to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How God was faithful to fulfill his promise of many descendants through Abraham. How God sent Moses and Aaron and rescued the nation of Israel from Egypt and through the Red Sea, and how God was faithful to bring them through the wilderness to the promised land, claiming victory over every nation that fought against them. Joshua reminds them of all of this 
And then he gives them an ultimatum. He says, you can either serve the gods of the people that you have defeated, or you can serve the Lord alone. And then Joshua says his famous line, probably a lot of you have it plastered in your house somewhere. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's it. That is the call on your life. Will you say yes like Joshua did and then spend the rest of your life following through on your yes? This song we're about to sing, it's about 20 years old, so it's basically a hymn at this point, you know? (laughs) But it couldn't be a more perfect way to end. The lyrics say, Today I choose to follow you. Today I give my yes to you. Today I choose to hear your voice and live. Today, I choose to follow you. As for me and my house, we will serve you. As for me and my house, we will spend our lives on you.